If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue our preaching series in this book. One of the things uh, that I hated the most in school growing up was this thing called group projects. Anybody else hate group projects as much as me? Okay, a few of you guys. I hated group projects. Here's how this would usually go down. Uh, the teacher would give you an assignment like, hey, make a, a volcano out of paper mache and explain geology, or uh, make a magazine out of construction paper and explain some historical figure. Uh, for all you Gen Z people, a magazine is like a website with pages, uh, but it's not digital. You have to like, turn... all right, I just want to make sure that you guys know what a magazine is. Uh, anyways, uh, uh, the teacher would give you the assignment and then like randomly pair you with people uh, in your class and you would have to go do the assignment. But here's the thing. The reason I hate a group project so much is because every single one that I was a part of was super dysfunctional, right? Like you had the brainiac who knew all the answers and usually did the majority of the work, but then resented everybody else in the group for not pitching in and not knowing as much as they did. Uh, You had the bossy one who wanted to like tell everyone what to do while they got the easiest part of the project. Uh, You you had uh, the introvert who just hated being in groups in general uh, and didn't show up to anything. You had the quiet ones who maybe had good ideas, but didn't say anything. Uh, And this was how group projects would go down. And to top it all off, you were graded as a group. You weren't graded individually, which meant uh, it was nerve-wracking because you were dependent on other people to get it done. Now, I bring this up because, sadly, I think we can treat the church like we treat group projects, right? We, some, of, some of us coast, and we don't really contribute at all. Uh, some of us are bossy and control freaks, and we want to tell everyone what to do. Some of us are the quiet, introverted types who maybe have really good ideas, but we don't say anything and we just sit on them. Others of us, maybe we do the majority of the work, but then we get bitter and resentful towards other people that aren't contributing. And to top it all off, the last thing we want to do is be graded collectively, because that means we got to be dependent on each other. That means we got to work together. But the reality is, is the church is a group project. Guys, Salt Church, we are a group project. The world is going to grade Jesus based on how well we work together. And this matters because if we don't do this well, if we take up the dysfunctional roles of a group project and try to go at this thing called church in a very selfish way, then when people read the truths in the book of Romans, they're not going to believe them because it looks like we don't. Right? If we as the church don't learn from these verses right here at the beginning of Romans, then it doesn't matter what else Romans offers in terms of its incredible theology. And it does have incredible theology, but the world is going to give us a failing grade if that theology that we believe doesn't change the way that we live. The truth is people don't believe the gospel because it's not true. People don't believe the gospel because it looks like we don't. Let me say that again. People don't believe the gospel because it's not true. They don't believe the gospel because it looks like we don't. So with that said, how do we do this thing uh, called church? How do we make the church a group project worth being a part of? I've got three uh, key ideas that I think we can take from scripture this morning. The first is this, celebrate the wins of others and spend time together. Celebrate the wins of others and spend time together. I want to read from... Romans chapter one, if I can find it here this morning. Romans chapter one, uh, starting in verse eight. I'm just gonna read the first two verses there. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you 
because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Celebrate the wins of others and spend time together. That's our first takeaway. Right off the bat, we see here that Paul is praying for this church in Rome, which means if we've got any chance at being a successful group project here as a church, it has to involve prayer. But what exactly do we pray for? What does Paul pray for? I think his prayer has two parts. The first part of his prayer is that he celebrates the wins of others. He celebrates the wins of others. Notice in verse eight, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Typically, when you wrote a letter in the ancient world, you would start it with celebrating a person's uh, physical health, or you would celebrate some financial success that they had that year. But notice what Paul is celebrating here. He's celebrating the faith of this Roman church. And not only is he celebrating their faith, he's celebrating that their faith doesn't terminate on themselves, but that their faith is starting to get a reputation. He's celebrating that, hey, your, your faith isn't just for you. It's becoming a blessing to everyone who hears about you, including the Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter. See, Paul never met these people uh, or hasn't met these people when he's writing Romans. He did not plant this church in Rome. Most likely the church in Rome was planted by Jewish people from Rome who had traveled to Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples, they hear the gospel, get saved, go back to Rome and start this little house church. It was not started by Paul. So here's Paul at the beginning of Romans. He's never met these people. He did not plant this church. And yet here he is thankful for this church and celebrating its impact. This leads me to ask, Are we excited when the gospel breaks out in any church or only in our church? Would we be okay if revival came to Greeley, but it happened down the street? If our little church never grew past this number represented here today, but because of our presence, churches got planted up and down I-25 and many people come to know Jesus, many of whom we will never know, would we sign up for that? Are we quick to celebrate missionaries and people uh, and churches all over the globe who are doing work among people groups? We will never meet this side of eternity. Because the reason Paul could celebrate this way and celebrate this church is because he shared the same faith with the Romans. And some 2,000 years later, we share that same faith with Christians all over the globe whom we will never meet. This means we share the same faith with Christians on this campus, even if they're not a part of Salt Company. We share the same faith with Christians in this city, even if they're not a part of our church. Their win is our win. Their story is our story. Their faith is our faith. We should celebrate with them and celebrate over them. One of my favorite things to do is watch videos on YouTube uh, that are super uh, sappy. Uh, I love to watch videos of soldiers coming home from war and being reunited with their families. Uh, I also love to watch like uh, 40 or 50 or sometimes 60 year wedding anniversaries. And you see that this couple is like still in love even after all those years of marriage. Or I really love, uh, this will get me going, uh, is if a a bride is being walked down the aisle, but uh, she's lost her father and like the brothers step in. Uh, to do it. It's like waterworks every time. Uh, I just connect so much with their stories and have this deep emotional connection. But here's the thing. I don't know who these people are. I will, I will more than likely never meet these people who post these videos on YouTube, and yet there's still this deep connection to them. 
Because this is how it should be among us as Christians. We should have a deep emotional connection to Christians, even that we've never met, because their story is our story. Their faith is our faith. We are family. Because if you found out you had a long lost cousin or, or a brother or a sister or that you were a parent of a child, you would do whatever it takes to, to get involved with that person's life. This is Paul's heart here. Is it our heart? The truth is we have blood that connects us as Christians that's stronger than any family lineage because we're connected by the blood of Jesus. We're not competitors to see who can build the largest church. We are companions watching Jesus Christ build his church. A win for the church down the street is a win for us. Let's be a people quick to celebrate that. The second thing that Paul prays for is his desire to spend time with the Roman church. Notice in verse 10, it says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. What's interesting is if you flip over to Acts 23, 11, Jesus is gonna appear to Paul in prison and he's gonna say this statement. Take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Jesus has made a promise to the apostle Paul, hey, you are going to get to Rome. And then sometime after that, this promise, Paul, we know from the city of Corinth, writes this letter of Romans to the Roman church. But what I find fascinating is that even though Jesus has made this promise to Paul that he's gonna get to Rome, if you read the letter of Romans, you get the sense that this promise is not being fulfilled the way Paul thought it would. It's taking longer than he expected. Notice he says, at last, I might be able to do this, right? It, it's not going the way that he thought. It's not an easy road. He goes through a lot of hardships to get there. And I know if I was Paul, at some point I'd ask, is this worth it? Did I hear Jesus the right way? Did he really promise me this? Is Rome where I'm supposed to go? And yet Paul, according to Romans, he never wonders those things. In fact, he never stops praying, Lord, may I get to Rome? May you fulfill your promise. Why does he keep praying that? Is it because Jesus made this promise to him? Well, yes, that's true. But what I want us to notice is Paul doesn't bring up this promise in, Rome, in Romans. He never says like Jesus promised that I would get to Rome. He never brings that up in this letter. Instead, what he says, the reason that Paul wants to go to Rome, according to his letter of Romans, is he just wants to see the Romans to spend time with them. He just, he, he just wants to be around them. Guys, I often don't want to go to church if it conflicts with the Broncos game or they have bad coffee or I don't know anyone. And I'm the pastor, right? And yet here's Paul, he's bending over backwards to get to a church that he's never been to. And if you read the end of Acts, Paul is beaten, shipwrecked, and bit by a snake all to get to this church. I think it's easy for us to let other priorities replace the church instead of actually making an ambition to be around other Christians. One of the more popular things that I've heard from many Christians, including uh, many pastors, is this statement, I'd rather hang out with non-Christians over Christians. I'd rather hang out with non-Christians over Christians. And usually when that statement is said, it's said in the context of uh, talking about how Christians are hypocritical and inauthentic and joyless and how non-Christians are, even though they might be a little bit more rough around the edges, they're more fun, right? And, and at least they're not trying to be someone that they're not. And I get it, believe me, I've said this statement a new, numerous times. 
Because there's nothing worse than being around a Christian who's joyless and inauthentic and hypocritical and, and pretends to be something that they are not. But here's the thing. These Roman Christians, they're not any different than Christians today. Even though verse eight says that their faith is heard all over the world, if you read the whole letter, you get this picture that the, the Christians in the Roman church were elitist. Many of them were racist. They divided over petty things. They too were hypocritical, inauthentic, and joyless. In fact, the, the Jewish people who became Christians who started this church were kicked out of Rome for a little bit. And then the Greek, or yeah, the Gentile Christians kind of take over. And when the Jewish people are able to come back, there's just all of this infighting between them. It's a messed up church. And yet, how does Paul start this letter? He doesn't say, I'd rather be with non-Christians over Christians. You guys are just too much. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I want to be with you guys, warts and all. Church, do we want to be with Christians? Do we long to spend time together? If we're waiting for Christians to be lovable, that's never going to happen, right? But if we see how much Christ loved us, when we were hypocritical, when we were inauthentic, when we were joyless, then we will find the desire to want to love other Christians who are in the same boat. See, we will never desire to be around other Christians until we realize that we are guilty of all of the things in them that make us not want to be around them. Guys, Paul is not coming in hot here. He's not like, hey, I'm an apostle and you guys are so messed up. Let me fix your problems. No, Paul is saying, hey, I see myself in you. I'm just like you guys. That's why I want to be around you because we're partakers of grace, of Jesus Christ. We're all on the same playing field. How do we do this? How do we celebrate the wins of others and desire to spend time with Christians? The answer is prayer. I don't want to miss uh, that Paul is describing his prayer life here. Notice he makes this statement in verse nine, for God is my witness that without ceasing, I mention you in my prayers. Translation, I'm not making this up. God can vouch for me. I pray for you guys a lot. I pray for you all the time. How does Paul develop a heart that genuinely celebrates the wins of other Christians and desires to want to be around for them? He prays for them. Guys, it's hard to see other churches and other ministries and other Christians as competition when we're praying for them. It's hard to avoid Christians we don't like when we're praying for them. And if I can, let me get real practical here. What if we as a church never use the phrase, I will pray for you? And instead, what if we as a church said, let me pray for you right now? What if we as a church never said or waited for someone to ask for prayer and we just approached people and it was common in our language, hey, can I pray for you? One of the uh, people that does this the best is honestly Keith. He might be the best I've ever seen at this. Um, he, he will take moments in the middle of conversations. It doesn't matter where you're at. You could be grocery shopping in Walmart. You could be in a hot tub. You could be on top of a mountain, barely able to breathe. And Keith will take like the 30 second, a minute and say, hey, let's pray. Let's pray. And, and I, I want to say like that should be normal in my brain, but there's a part of me that's like, oh, this feels so unnatural, but it shouldn't be unnatural. Right? Like I'm the kind of guy that will say, oh, I'll be praying for you. And then I, or I'll shoot like the little prayer emoji thing in the text message. And then I never pray. Right? Let's not be that church. Let's be a church, uh, not of pretend prayerers, if that's a word. I didn't know how to spell that. Um, but let's be a church that prays constantly. 
And what should our prayers be filled of? Celebrating the wins of others and praying that we can spend time with each other so that our faith too might be proclaimed in all the world. Guys, that's a successful group project. The second key to a successful group project is to encourage each other and send our best away. Encourage each other and send our best away. Picking the text back up in Romans. Reading verses 11 through 13, it says this. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. In these three verses, Paul unpacks why he wants to see the Romans so bad, why he wants to spend time with them. And he offers essentially two reasons. Let me show you this in the text. The first reason Paul wants to spend time with them is to have a time of encouragement. Again, notice in verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. What's the spiritual gift? Well, it's not like spiritual gifts how we usually think of them. Paul is not some spiritual Oprah here who's like, and you get the spiritual gift of prophecy, and you get the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Like, that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul clarifies what he means by the spiritual gift in the next verse, verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So put this together. The spiritual gift that Paul wants to impart to this church is a time of mutual encouragement. Because the greatest spiritual gift you can give somebody is encouragement. In fact, I'd argue that's the purpose of all spiritual gifts, is to encourage each other. Let me be really blunt and say this uh, the only way that I know how. I need you to come to this church gathering. I need you to come to this church gathering every single week, but not for the reason that you think. I don't need you to come here and affirm my preaching so that I feel better about myself. I'm not some narcissist that needs you for my self-worth. But here's the thing. God is doing something in your life that is amazing. And I need to hear about it so that it encourages my faith. And you need me for the same reason. We need each other to encourage each other that Jesus is worthy of putting our faith in. Back when I was a youth pastor... In uh, Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, there was this guy named Jeff that was a part of our church. And Jeff was this awesome guy. He loved Jesus so much. Uh, You could just see the joy of Christ on his face. Uh, He was a professional bull rider. I'm not even sure how you get into that as a profession, Um, but that's what he did. And he just lived life to the fullest. Amazing guy. Loved Jesus. Loved having Jeff uh, a part of the church. And uh, uh, tragically, when we were out there, uh, Jeff was diagnosed with liver failure, and there was really nothing the doctors could do. Uh, He had about a month, if not a couple of weeks, to live. And I'll never forget, Jeff came to our church gathering. Uh, uh, He would die two weeks after this. And uh, he, he came to our church gathering and he stood in the back and his body was frail and it was weak and uh, his skin was turning yellow from uh, the dialysis treatment. And I'll never forget, Jeff stood up during the worship, even though his body was really weak and he lifted his hands and he belted out the songs and the smile came over his face. And even though he could barely walk, he, he still walked down the aisle to take communion uh, that Sunday. And, on, and I ran up to Jeff after the gathering and I was like, Jeff, I can't believe you're here. Why are you here? And I'll never forget what Jeff said. He goes, why wouldn't I be here? 
this is my family. These are the people I need to be around. These are the people that encourage me. See, I, I don't even think Jeff realized in that moment that he was an encouragement to the rest of the church as well. Because what we saw in Jeff was a man going through pain and suffering and still saying Jesus was worth it. And we needed to see that. We needed to be a part of that. As much as we were encouraging Jeff, he was encouraging us. Because that's what our church should be as well. We should be a people that not only come to be encouraged here on Sunday morning, but we should encourage other people that we all might have hope and faith in Jesus. Again, if I may, let me provide some practical coaching here. Guys, don't just come to this gathering and sit and take in a sermon and sing some songs and do communion and peace out. Linger, come early, stay late, get to know people, hear their stories, take them out for lunch, bring them into your homes, be a part of this church. Don't just consume, but encourage one another. Because this is why we provide donuts and coffee. It's not so that you're uh, you're fed and we realize you're hungry. Like, that's not why we do that. We, we would go to Winchell's every Sunday and provide Dutch Bros if we really wanted to do that. The reason we provide those things is because it's much easier to have a conversation with somebody when there's a donut and coffee in your hand to say, hey, tell me your story. How can I encourage you this week? How can I pray for you? Let's do it right now. Because that, that, that's a church that mutually encourages one another. The second reason why Paul wants to see the Roman church is so that they send their best away to help him plant more churches. Uh, This is essentially actually a recruiting trip for Paul, and that's why he wants to visit this church in Rome. Notice verse uh, verse 13, it says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. When Paul says he wants to reap a harvest here, he's not talking about a literal harvest. He wants to see people come to know Jesus in the city of Rome through the church of Rome. But this is interesting because later in the book of Romans, Paul is going to say this statement. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So wait a minute here. If that's true, then why does Paul want to preach the gospel in the city of Rome when the gospel's already been preached there? Why does he want to reap a harvest among the Roman church when he did not help lay the foundations of the Roman church? Well, the answer is because Paul wants to see more and more people added to the Roman church so that it becomes healthy enough to send him out along with the team to bring the gospel all over the Roman empire, including a place called Spain where the gospel has not been preached, where Christ has not been named. In fact, Paul knows the the city of Rome is super strategic because all roads lead to Rome. And if the gospel can flourish there, if this church can become healthy enough, then it can send out missionary teams to anywhere in the known world and bring the gospel to all the places where Christ is not named. Guys, the, the book of Romans, the letter of Romans is essentially a support letter for missions. What Paul is doing here is he's gonna lay out all of his theology to the Romans, not just so that they would be encouraged, but so that they would be prepared that when he shows up, he's going to take up kind of like a church planning residency and then that they can send him out to plant more and more churches. The harvest that Paul wants to see there is not just for Rome. It's for the world. For us as Salt Church, is this the way we think? Do we want to harvest here at UNC and in Greeley just so that we can have the coolest, biggest church and pay this incredible staff? Or do we want to harvest here at Salt Church so that we can send our best away? 
so that we can send out team after team after team to plant more churches throughout Colorado and throughout the world that there might not be a place where Christ is not named? Do we see Greeley as just a place to live or do we see this as a strategic city where God might move in and among us and use an unlikely uh, common city like Greeley to send out more and more laborers that many, many people might come to know Jesus? Guys, Salt Church, we didn't end up here by accident. There were many, many churches uh, within the Salt Network and within the City Light family that sent their best to this place to help plant this church. What a tragedy that would be if that stops with us. What a tragedy it would be if we just start collecting Christians rather than commissioning them out. Guys, I wanna see a harvest reaped here, but not for the name and fame of Salt Church. I wanna see a harvest reached here for the name and fame of Jesus that we might send labors all over the world, that more and more people might hear about Jesus. If we celebrate the wins of others, desire to spend time with each other and encourage each other and send our best away, that's a group project that I can get behind. I don't hate that one. I would wanna be a part of that. The last key success to this group project called the church is this. Share the gospel with everyone, especially with Christians. Share the gospel with everyone, especially with Christians. Picking back up the text. Verses 14 and 15, it says this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I want to share the gospel with everyone, especially with those that are Christians. Here Paul shows us that his visit to Rome isn't just a random visit, but it's tied to his very purpose. Because the purpose of Paul's life and the purpose of our life should be to take the gospel to everyone. That's why he lists out all of these people. He's trying to show us that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel's for the culturally sophisticated, like the Greeks, and it's for the uneducated backwoods country people, like the barbarians. It's for, it's for the, the wise who have made good decisions in their life. It's, it's for the fools that have made poor decisions in their life. It's for the blue-collar worker in Greeley. It's for the computer technician in FOCO. And yes, the gospel is even for a California transplant who has moved to Colorado. The gospel is for everyone. The, the word gospel uh, actually means good news. Uh, and the, the Bible writers borrowed this from the Greek world, world because the word was often used in wartime. And what would happen is an army would come down into a valley and fight another army. And if they won, they would send a messenger back to their cities. And that messenger would come into the city and yell, gospel, gospel, or good news, good news. We have won. We have won a great victory. We have defeated our enemies. There is no reason to fear. So when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ, we too are shouting a great victory that on the cross, Jesus didn't just defeat an army, but he defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death, and that we have nothing left to fear. We can come out of the shadows and be honest about our sin. We can come out no matter who we are because the victory that Jesus has achieved has covered the cosmos. If that's true, then there's not a person in here that the victory of Jesus does not apply to. There is not a person in here that the gospel does not speak of victory over. Jesus is for every man, woman, child, age, race, socioeconomic status, and background. In fact, the gospel is for you even if you're a Christian. 
Notice Paul says in verse 15, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Wait a minute here. Paul, these people are already Christians. They're part of the church in Rome, and yet you want to preach the gospel to them? Why? Well, the answer is because his desire isn't just that they would believe the gospel, but that they would be changed by the gospel. See, there's this false narrative in the church that says the gospel is only for the non-believer and not for the believer. That the gospel is only for the non-Christian and not for the Christian. This narrative teaches that, that the gospel is how you start the Christian life, but the gospel is not what you need that will sustain you in the Christian life. That you need to believe in Jesus and place your faith in him and repent of your sins and that will make you a Christian. But if you really wanna grow as a Christian, you need to move past the gospel and move on to something else and that was what will bring you maturity. Guys, I'm here to tell you that is hogwash, baloney, a dumpster fire. There's a few other words I wanna use, but I'd probably get fired as a preacher. That, that, that is not true. If you try to grow as a Christian, apart from the power of the gospel, you will more than likely walk away from Christianity burned out when you never tried the real thing. The thing that will radically change our hearts, the thing that will motivate us to actually change, the the, the thing that will sustain us when life is hard, the thing that will grow us to look more and more like Jesus is not some new discovered truth. It's by hearing the same truth over and over and over again that you and I are sinners in need of mercy and grace from Jesus Christ. That's what will change us. When that isn't just a fact in our head, but it's a force in our heart, we will grow as Christians. So church, I've been following Jesus for 25 years and I'm still tempted to believe that if I really wanna grow as a Christian, I need to move past the gospel. That my real problem is my marriage or that I don't share my faith enough or uh, that I need to manage my money better or uh, that I'm too selfish and that if I could just fix those things, then my life would improve. But church, the reality is, is my biggest problem is, is that I'm not believing that the gospel is sufficient enough to fix all of those things. That's why I need to hear the gospel preached and I need to hear it preached often. We never move past this. The gospel is for every step of the Christian life. And this matters tremendously for us as a church because why would people believe the gospel if the gospel doesn't change us? This past month, uh, revival broke out uh, at a small seminary called Asbury uh, in Kentucky. And uh, it was all over the news and social media. And I know that this uh, revival has uh, garnered a little bit of controversy. Welcome to 2023. Everything's controversial, but I don't really care about that. Uh, what I find fascinating about this revival is something that um, no one is really talking about, and it's this. Because this revival did not break out in a third world country full of pagans. This revival did not break out in a sin city like Las Vegas. This this revival broke out at a seminary with Bible college students who had heard the gospel a hundred times, a thousand times, hundreds of thousands of times. Why did they need to hear the gospel again if they already knew it? The answer is because if revival has any shot of breaking out in any place, it has to break out in the church first. Because revival does not start with non-Christians. It starts with Christians. It starts with us. If the gospel does not create a revival in our own hearts, it's got no shot of breaking out in the hearts of people outside this space. This is why our two rhythms 
are just anchored in the gospel. When we gather here every Sunday morning, we're gonna sing songs about the gospel. We're gonna take communion because it reminds us of the gospel. We're gonna preach the gospel. When we scatter in our home groups, we're gonna grow as Christians. We're gonna live in community. We're gonna live on mission all in response to the gospel. We never move past it. One of the ways you know you've discovered if the gospel is really good news for you is if you can't help but share it with others. Paul says that he is obligated to share the gospel. In other words, he's indebted to other people until he shares it with him or with them. How does that work? Well, if you were to give me $100, I would be indebted to you, right? But if you were to give me $100 to give to someone else, then I'm not really indebted to you. I'm indebted to that other person until I give him the money. The same is true with us and the gospel. The gospel has been given to you by God, but you're not indebted to God to share it. You're indebted to someone else to share it because God gave you the gospel so that you would give it to someone else. Because the gospel always comes to you on its way to someone else. And if it stays with us, then it dies with us. This is why we wanna be a church that talks about the gospel constantly that it wouldn't just be a belief that we throw up on the website, but it would be the foundation for everything we do. May we share the gospel constantly, especially amongst ourselves. Church, imagine a group project that isn't dysfunctional, but is filled with people who take up the call seriously to to not just say, hey, this is what we're gonna believe, but we're gonna allow what we believe to change who we are. What might the world think of the theology of Romans if we became a church that didn't just believe it, but lived it? This is our group project. This is our heart and prayer for Salt Church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I pray that it would not return void. God, I pray as a church, as we unpack this amazing letter of Romans that just lays out the gospel and theology, and who we are, and what we believe, I pray that we wouldn't miss that these aren't just doctrines for our minds, but that they are truths that should change us at a fundamental level, that they should get inside of our hearts and change our motivations, that they should change the way we think, they should change the way we operate. God, would we be a church that is quick to celebrate the wins of others? Would we be a church that longs to be with each other? Would we be a church that encourages one another? Would we be a church that preaches the gospel often? And may you do a work in and among us. May the world peer in and may they say, Jesus, if, that, if this is your people, if this is what they look like, I'm not gonna give them a failing grade. I'm gonna give them a passing grade. And I wanna know how I can be a part of that group project. God, would you do that work in and among us? It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.